Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. We're here at the BSA and today we're talking to Imogen Tyler, who's giving the keynote speech later today on stigma. Stigma machines? What does that mean? Um, So stigma machine, well, it might be better to start with stigma and power before I go to machines. Mm -hmm. So the project I'm currently working on reconceptualize stigma as a form of power which other people have started doing as well Uh, and I'm looking at the kind of history of the concept and trying to kind of rethink the concept as a way of thinking I suppose the crisis of neoliberal capitalism and the role of stigma in implementing um, neoliberal capital and in how we might resist it Okay, so there's a few things that I think we're going to need to break down for us there. What is neoliberal capitalism? Well, neoliberal capitalism, I guess, is the system, the current phase of capitalism that we're in, which you could call financial capitalism. So one of the characteristics of it um, might be, for example, the end of the sorts of welfare forms of capitalism we had in the mid-20th century, which in Britain would be like the welfare state. So the undoing of a form like that would be one characteristic of neoliberal capitalism, the privatisation of services, the enclosure of public and social goods, and the increasing financialization of everyday life. Um, so, for example, everything is about quantification. So think about how we're measured... Um, and how we're monitored, how everything becomes conditional, how welfare becomes conditional on your behaviour, your attitude, your relationship to work, how league tables dominate everything, how schools stop being run by local authorities and start being run by, uh, you know, in relationship to corporations, for example. So it's how the corporate and the financial sectors start to have much more control over what you might call the financial state. That might be one way of thinking about it. But it's about commodification and kind of money and the accumulation of capital as the motor for the sorts of societies that we live in. Okay, so why is that a crisis? It's <laughs> Well, it's become a crisis. I mean, I think capitalism is always a crisis. And so Satnam talked about that in his lecture, didn't he? How modernity, which is in a way the rise of capitalism um, affects affects forms of crisis in people's everyday lives because things are enclosed, people's access to sustaining their lives and this becomes dominated by markets. I see, when you describe that to me, how I see that in the real world is kind of like kind of throwback to like kind of a 19th century world there's no kind of mm. state to mediate things, but it's just big actors with lots of money. And mm. these big actors, um, like, they're like billionaires, they finance stuff. Mm. And so, like, whether it's charity, like the best example is like Notre Dame at the moment. So, big private companies of big or individuals put money into a public project. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's a really good way to think about it. So, if you think that 
one thing you could say, and actually this is what like someone like Thomas Piketty would show in his work, you, know, you have the welfare state, a kind of levelling out of economic inequalities is like a tiny moment in the history of capitalism. But actually, if you look over the longer period of the history, what's more normal is much more like the sorts of inequalities we might have seen in Victorian Edwardian Britain. So someone like Danny Dorling would show how we're going back to a sort of Victorian levels of inequality, but actually were instead of state provision, we're going back to more things like charitable provision, corporate forms of provision. But that's the wealth also being accumulated. Oh, sorry. sorry, yeah, just that's like something that is sort of state mandates as well, right? Like oh, absolutely, yeah. So neoliberalism is like the state being like uh, the market is king, and so we're going yeah. to encourage all state like services that have been traditionally provided by the state or for the past yeah. 70, yeah. 80 years provided by the state become marketised. Exactly. Yeah. And the state had a big role in that in the 18th and 19th century too, in a way, and that's uh, what Carl, someone like Carl Polanyi, which I'm probably saying his name wrong, was <laughs> argued is that you know there is no such thing as free market capital. The state, the formation of the state is actually the state intervening in order to enable free market capitalism. So the state as we know it is already a kind of capitalist state. Cool. So having got that done... I'm not an expert on, can I just clarify, (laughs) on political economy, the state, but it relates to stigma. Okay, so where does stigma fit in in that context? So one of the things... So I became interested in stigma because when people talk about being disenfranchised, for example, um, the word stigma comes up all the time. So if you talk about people uh, who have been stigmatised because they're benefits claimants or because they're single mothers or uh, you can... So, so stigma comes up all the time in sociology, but I was really interested in thinking about what it meant and its relationship to these kind of social conditions of social fragmentation, decomposition. Um, so I wanted to start thinking about um, stigma and its relationship to political economy and whether stigma intensifies in particular periods. So what you just mentioned about, uh, Tiso about uh, like charity in the Victorian period, you know, we know charity, charitable forms of giving, are much more connected to notions of deserving and under more pronounced versions of who deserves, who's a moral enough character, yeah? So what's the role in stigma in the distribution of things like social provision? So rather than just think about stigma more sort of psychologically as its impact on the individual, I want to think about its connection. So one of my kind of theories that I was working with is that we can see the intensification of stigma around particular populations and groups in relationship to changing political objectives or economic objectives. So that might include, for example, Islamophobia or uh, how bordering around refugees, how's the stigmatisation of particular groups connected to these bigger historical shifts and changes. So that's why I became kind of interested in thinking about stigma in a way where you look up Who's producing stigma? Why? For what reasons? Is it intensifying? Why is it intensifying around these groups? How is it crafted? Who's kind of making it? Who's producing it? How is it being orchestrated? And that's where the machine comes in. What are the machinic formations of the production of stigma? But also looking back, so back to history to track how the reactivation of stigma always draws on these longer family trees and histories of stigma uh, as well. So 
yeah, so that's the kind of way, looking up and back rather than just at the level of social interaction, which is where a lot of the traditionally the research on stigma has taken place in sociology. Um, but yeah, I guess like stigma isn't necessarily a concept that we throw around no. a lot. So what are the histories of that within sociology? So stigma interestingly ha hasn't been used so much in sociology around race and class so that's quite interesting to me it tends to have been used in particular in disability studies there's a very strong tradition i think about stigma in disability studies around mental health for example but i kind of in thinking about it more as a political economy relationship to history and power i actually wanted to foreground issues of racism and class and think in, uh, one of the things I do is try and think about racism as a form of stigma and there is if you look at someone like Fanon's work or you trace back to Du Bois and through the black sociological tradition actually there is another history of stigma in the sociological tradition already but it's been completely kept apart from the more Goffman approaches to stigma so one of the things I wanted to do is actually track stigma politics and stigma as a form of power in relationship to these more these traditions of thinking that have been marginalized so that's kind of one of the projects is actually to to make racism and issues of class inequality central to an understanding of stigma hmm. like what does how they're produced i'm thinking about stigma here as productive force yeah yeah because i think yeah like stigma in an everyday usage or like a common sense usage can like to me sounds very depoliticized exactly like yeah so you're basically trying to say like how can we use this concept to understand how power is imprinted yeah. on the body cool because that's what stigma means marking yeah I, and marking the body and this is what this was what i think what you said was quite interesting when you said about stigma's never really been applied to kind of race I, I mean, I'd say that there, with a caveat, yeah. there is some work, but well, not. Yeah. I would never, from a common sense approach, I would never think to myself, apply that to skin colour. Okay, exactly. I would, I would apply it to someone who's got a disability or something like they're yeah. stigmatised yeah. or socially, I've come kind of some kind of yeah. social deprivation. Yeah. But a common sense approach would never associate that with skin colour. Yeah. How, and, and conceptually, I would now, but when you think of it, it does make sense. And Stuart Hall said, race is a badge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you start thinking about badging, which is one way of thinking about stigma, because it's about how you're badged mm -hmm. or marked by another mm -hmm. or a group or, yeah, mm -hmm. then actually it makes sense that racialization is intimately, is mm -hmm. a form of stigmatization, yeah. if not the primary form mm -hmm. of stigmatization. Yeah. Yeah, so what Tisa is saying is that he wouldn't connect stigma with racism. Yeah. But, but once concept, you start yeah. thinking about yeah. stigma as a kind of system of marking, yeah. and a, a marking that's written on the body, and mm -hmm. that's what, what the term means, which I could come on to from the Greek, actually. It's, it, means oh, is it, yeah. it, yeah. it means tattoo. It means tattoo, so it means written on, on the body. Okay. So think about someone like Stuart Hall writing about how race is a badge. You know, if, if you start thinking about racialization as a form of stigmatization that's historical in mm. the forms it takes, then suddenly actually putting race at the center of stigma yeah. actually changes the concept of stigma as well because it's impossible and not to think about it in relation to history and power. You, and that kind of, not to get too kind of like kind of biblical, but it also it, when I think of that now, the way you describe it to me, it makes me think of the story of like Noah 
and his son. So exactly. like Ham's marked for yeah. the rest of life, that sti- yeah, stigma. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah it makes sense yeah. to me, yeah. But why, why, I mean, sometimes it's better to talk about just about racism, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. But why I like stigma is it's a, an intersectional concept. Mm-hmm. So what I like about it is you can use it to foreground racism, but actually that's, it intersects with race we know and racialization changes historically over time according to different imperatives yeah and also yeah so like you can think about it other forms mm, of, you can think of about it, the genders side of it or you know yeah exactly. no that's, that's really interesting so that's why i wanted to work with it as a concept because it allows you to think about how the body might be marked in changing ways over time mm but which are always linked to dehumanization actually mm-hmm. so what that's in a way stigma is a movement of dehumanization and it's a movement of devaluation it's about devaluing people through marking them so that's why stigma to me is a good concept yeah. because it's not always just race there, mm. there is always, it's all very often intersecting with other forms of marking yeah and it makes me think of like like you said the, the kind of the machine side of it yeah how it's kind of like a, a growing movement yeah. and it's yeah. gathering up pace yeah. so so when i think of things like so how do you disrupt machines because machines exactly you are like yeah you get it apologies for the change in sound there we just had to move rooms but we were a really crucial point in the podcast so imogen do you want to just tell us what you were saying about stigma machines yeah, so uh, Tiso was saying, you know, about um, he, he started to see what I meant. <laughs> the moment came. He got the concept. So, you know, the, so, well, stigma meant tattoo originally, but the idea of the machine in, in Greek times, and I could talk about that at great length, but it might bore your listeners. No, but, no. The, the, you know, the idea is that, you know, the stigma, stigma machines take different forms. So if we think about something like austerity, yeah, how it's implemented through, for example, the emergence of the figure of the welfare cheat. Yeah, that's political speech, politicians. It's designed then into policy, into how welfare claimants are treated in benefits offices, which become hostile environments. It's in reality TV, the new genres of poverty porn emerge, etc. So the machines are composed of different forms of you know, mediated power and people become stigmatised as they're caught up in the machinery of stigma production and it imprints upon them and it's quite hard to defend yourself against that. So that machine is, is a process of, of like, for me to know what you just said, of othering people all the time, who, yeah. of who's in and who's out. So in like the current debate about Islamophobia, like yeah. Muslims are actually out at the moment. Yeah. But that, con- that configuration can change at any moment and it could yeah. make X group out. Yeah, I mean, it can sort of change at any moment. But one so you're looking up to the, the machine form, but you also need to look back to history to see how very often what's being reactivated in the, ma- in the composing of a stigma machine is like actually something that's historically already been there. So it's almost like, if you think a bit like the Borg, yeah, it's like a cannibalization. <laughs> you, we're totally on the same wavelength. <laughs> this is beautiful to watch, by the way. <laughs> so the machine like, can take on different bits and forms, but very often it's taken on ideologies and value systems that have been there already residual 
So like deserving and the undeserving poor would be like a classic one. Poverty would be the best one, the poor people. And that's what I'm going to talk about in my lecture today. But So deserving and undeserving, how the machine is calibrated will sort of produce those categories, if that makes sense. But like, yeah, I think we've talked about this in terms of like histories of phrases, you know, like um, Gordon Brown in 2007 came out with uh, British jobs for British workers. Mm. And that's like a classic far right slogan right and then he uses it to be kind of part of this like liberal narrative of like why we need to like you know curbs on immigration you know supposedly you know that we need to protect jobs for people who are seen as British and not migrants yeah but the way that those stigmas are you know he's using that stigma but he's drawing on Old stigmas. Exactly. So that's what ha- that's what's happening all the time. It's a reworking. So like Beveridge, when he created the welfare state, called it a revolution. That's the term he used. Yeah. It's time for a revolution. We need a new. And then that's the term he and Duncan Smith used to describe the implementation of austerity and universal credit. So it's like you get these that's really interesting. But I think um, Tisa, you said about like what you do about like machines. Yeah, because and I, now, yeah. because like, I was taking right, so your analogy of the ball. I, I like that because yeah, that makes yeah. sense to me. But the ball yeah. are almost like they almost seem undefeatable, yeah. right? They almost. <laughs> seem, but you can. Sorry, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ball. Like, it's like Star Trek kind of like oh, geekiness, God. but. Um, <laughs> but machines like are cannibalized yeah. and remade by tagging on different parts. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so so they're like, they're um, not like in, they're not discreet. They can just take on different ideologies. A machine, the form of a machine, might cannibalize other machines or add on to other machines. So Islamophobia okay. might connect to um, kind of nationalist, you know, ethno-nationalist projects. They might come together at a particular moment, which they did in the refugee crisis in Europe. Yeah. So like it was like every migrant trying to get to Europe in that period was figured as a Muslim, and, and the whole debate was figured as Islamophobia. But there might be, there might be other ways of imagining stigma machines. Okay, so could an example be like the idea of terrorism and how like the stigma of being a terrorist can get attached to different groups at different times? Yes. So like yeah. Irish people in the eighties. Or seventies, yeah, but the point is, is that, that that they wouldn't be equivalent. So then no, no, yeah. no, they're not equivalent. But no, then that but as then a exactly. stigma gets attached to a different group in exactly. a, like drawing, exactly. yeah, in different yeah. ways. Yeah. But well, yeah. I was gonna say, see, because they see, because those machines seem so powerful and so yeah. big, they almost yeah. seem indestructible. Yeah, but think about the immediate owned by like three people or something. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. So the yeah. idea is, so how do you disrupt something that that seems yeah. on the surface? indestructible, un- unbreakable, unchanging, it goes yeah. on forever. Yeah. So that's where machine breaking is really interesting as a history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so what is... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're totally... We're, we're totally on the same wavelength. You know, so if you take classic accounts, which have been rightly problematised, but of the, you know, because they're so national-centric, but mm-hmm. of enclosures in English capitalism, the enclosure of the land... Mm-hmm. You know, that was to do with the invention of the steam engine, the industrialisation of agriculture, people displaced. Um, but what arose was movements of resistance, and, and some of those were machine-breaking movements, you know. And then in mills, too, you saw people breaking 
breaking the machinery. So I think that's a really good, although it's a different type, it's a real machine in a way. It's a really good way of thinking about how, how do we disrupt the machine? How do, you, how do you put you know a stick in and stop that machinery from effectively working? So that's where you start thinking about stigma as a site of struggle, yeah? So you start thinking about it in, in, in this way as a form of power that's imprinted on the body, that's produced through these machineries of power. Then you can start thinking about how you might... It's a site of struggle where you can disrupt that machine or change its message or... So something like Black Power would be a really good example, yeah? So like Black Power, if you think start thinking about that as an anti-stigma struggle through that lens, you can see that's a recoding, an attempt to shift disrupt the machine so what what what's a stigma can become a site of collective struggle and positive identity yeah yeah it fits really well i think with what satnam was talking about yesterday uh whenever it was wednesday when he was talking about um you know decolonization and like forms of resistance and like there was a picture of um a guy like so it was talking about solidarity between uh like um black power groups and other racialized groups and there was a guy with this big sign saying like yellow peril stands exactly. with black, exactly. uh, about power. Chicano movement so talked about then you get a spread from one group who've been like racially stigmatized and then you can start to see the spread of that as a kind of solidarity movement across different groups so then that starts to really mess up the functioning of the machine if you like and what he said was brilliant yeah what he's saying is that at the moment those solidarity movements start joining up that becomes a crisis for capitalism Mm. so he talked about neoliberal capitalism as a counter-revolution against the solidarity movements that start emerging i think what you're saying makes sense but what i've kind of tried to start doing is looking forward to where we might be so Things like looking at someone like China. Now, China's using a good example of how they've used that machine in the idea of social control. So they have the state linked with all forms of social media altogether controlling all populations. So the good example is like of the kind of the Uyghur Muslim population. They have a million people in a prison, an open prison, controlled by categorization. And these people, they have no forms of, they can't form any solidarity because they've monitored at all points of their life. So there's no, there's no room for that. And, and, and in, in mainstream China, any kind of dissidents are so marginalised, they can't even leave their house. And what's kind of scary is that the West is looking to the East for forms of social... So we have all the systems in place, it just, we just need the political will to link them together. So we have Facebook, we have facial recognition, we have all these things there already, but we just need the political will. So, if, I don't know, a terrorist attack, for example, would say we need this for your own protection and that will marginalise any solidarities that we have because all these systems are in place already. We just need the will to link them. So I think to myself, at that point, how do you fight something? Like, like for me, the, the scariest thing is Facebook because how, that has so much information and it's so much, it's so public, and it's an effective way to control people and convince them that to, for your own protection, give me more control. And that kind of ties into that kind of, I think it's Stuart's whole, when it's like Christ and hegemony, that idea that it can be coercive. I'll give you more power to protect me. And so I, when, when I think of those machines, I, I get very frightful where we can be. And like China's little working example of this at the moment. I mean, this is classic, you know, struggle stuff, isn't it, between surveillance state, which is really partly 
if you think, if you go back to like Foucault's writing about power, the panopticon, <laughs> the way that's become, in a way, the you know, you can really tie that to what you're describing, the ways in which these surveillance technologies have become entrenched in everyday life but this also how we participate in our own surveillance yeah yes. so increasingly so you know there's some great writing on this so I guess it's like how, how to resist that becomes a key question because you're actually engaged in your own surveillance as well <laughs> yeah so so but I, also I think um those same tools become sites of resistance as well right like exactly when facebook yeah. becomes a site for political organizing or twitter or whatever yeah, exactly so that's surveillance so Noam brown writes about the history of um, black surveillance and you know that, that there's always there's always it's not it's never complete it's always a site of struggle you know where there's power there's always kind of resistance so how do you cannibalize those technologies and use them in a, in a different way and that's a kind of the site of possibility you know political possibility but you're right it just seemed overwhelming one of the things that frustrated me about like writing on stigma yeah, is that it's very much this kind of mid-20th century kind of apoliticized concept that comes out of sociology and social psychology in a particular moment and i wanted to kind of rethink the genealogy of the concepts so if you look at the etymology it's a greek word and it means tattoo so the word stigma means tattoo and it means so Greeks used it because they associated tattooing with barbarians so barbarians would tattoo themselves decoratively so it seems to be that's why the tattoo started to be used as a punishment and it means a punishment so it'd be written on you like with ink, with needles I am a thief, I am a runaway and it was used particularly it was a slave, these are slave economies or imperial economies and it was used for non-citizens so it's a way of marking people. So it's a way of identifying them. So it's surveillance technology, but it's also a way to humiliate people. Very often, if you were tattooed in the Greek and later Roman empires, it was tied to a punishment of deportation. So you had to go and do work in, you know, building roads in Britain for seven years, and that you'd be marked with your punishment. And it very often, I'm doing, I'm pointing to my forehead because it was, it was very often written on the forehead. Or sometimes uh, collars were used, yeah. like slave collars. So I was kind of interested in thinking about stigma as a form of power that's written on the body. Yeah. And how you could then take that history of stigma from Europe, and this is European history, and that's crucial because people associate tattooing histories with. Um, Polynesian societies with James Cook going on his yeah and it being imported back but actually the, this is long entrenched European history of tattooing um, that we don't think about it as a European practice in a way so it's just really interesting to think about how you can use that history to reconceptualize stigma as a kind of form of power yeah. and then you can see you know the Atlantic slave trade branding marking the body but also the marking of poor people within Europe badging people so the history of badging so if you uh, wanted to get poor relief in your parish in Elizabethan England you had to wear a badge that showed you were a pauper and that became a way of humiliating people could you also argue that like uh, maiming people who commit crimes is a form of badging yeah you could do so like if you look at Foucault the history of discipline and punishment yeah mm. he says we move from a kind of society of the scaffold and the public institution to 
uh, that's that becomes hidden more indoors. And I would disagree with that. I would just say it shifts. Mm. It's not that we move from torture. It's just the tortures become sometimes more symbolic or less uh, not always always. (laughs) no not always i mean the prison prison complex is alive and well (laughs) but there's it i think his idea of a shift or break is wrong yeah actually what i'm really interested in is continuities tracking threads of continuities in those histories because i think they're really enlightening rather than saying there's a break Mm. between x period i would would say that i would kind of like reinforce that that the idea of this kind of idea of tattooing in, yeah. the, in the European sense, it's kind of linked to that the kind of judo-Christian notion of like the mark of Cain. This has always been there's always been a marking of people who are out beyond the pale, yeah. the outsider. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's it's, it's entirely so consistent. tying those material histories to more symbolic forms of violence. You know, not always symbolic, but actually tying them. That to me is crucial to 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 my understanding of stigma. That it's got this material history of marking, and that is tied to this. So yeah, I've been thinking. I don't know how connected you'll think this is about this a lot recently. Being more part of like queer circles, because I know like obviously the tattoo, you know, the fashion like because tattoos are so fashionable now. Like lots and lots of people have them. Like all three of us have tattoos, but I've noticed that like in queer circles, it like people have many more tattoos and they're much more obvious maybe like than in the general population, and. I was thinking, like, there's something interesting there about people whose bodies are marked in, mm. like, as queer people, like, using tattooing as, and, like, yeah. taking that history of shame and inverting it and as being, a, like, using your body to, like, a whole history of expression. Yeah. So the, the person to read on, there's a really brilliant um, collection called Written on the Body, edited by Jen Kaplan, that does the kind of history of the tattoo in Europe and the America. Um, but she is precisely always moving between a punishing, humiliating mark and a mark that's being re might be used as a sign of positivity or honour or belonging. So early Christians mark themselves with tattoos um, to show that they, you know, their loyalty was to God and not the state, for example. Yeah, but you can see if you start to think about that that material history also more figuratively then you can type to different histories of struggle yeah but you're right i mean tattooing still really i think does tell us something in relation to those histories of stigma and resistance so when i think about stigma i think because i think about this form of power i'm thinking about it always as a site of resistance yeah so it doesn't always work so if you want to stigmatize in terms of what its effects are supposed to be so it could be someone's trying to stigma you feel stigmatized but you don't respond in the way you don't feel shame for example yeah or you don't feel humiliation actually you might feel resisting particularly if it becomes collective yeah so stigma why i like stigma more than shame for thinking politically is that the marking doesn't always have the effects that you thought it might have So that's another way of thinking about the machine and resistance is that you might be tattooed, but actually you might the meaning of that might become a sign of a badge of yeah, counter struggle. Thank you so much for joining us, Imogen. Excited for your keynote later on today. And uh, yeah, this, you've been listening to Surviving Society with the BSA in Glasgow. And we'll be back with a few more episodes for you to listen to. So don't forget to tune into those. Thank you.